Hey, you were telling me, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, you, you told me this one idea that I, I can't really stop thinking about. And I've used it many times in conversation with other people. And I've tried to explain it to other people many times. I, I just tried to tell Ivar uh, Heckscher about it, I don't know, last month. And I think every time I describe it, I kind of mess it up. But I think it's also because when you first told me this idea, I misunderstood you. And I don't know if that's a problem. Maybe that was a good thing that what I understood was also good or something in my own, you know, mistaken way. But basically, it was something that you had said where this idea of being a juggler or maybe juggling artist and see, I'm already uh, I don't know what you said, but that this idea was kind of a myth or it was a fantasy that we constructed in our mind to kind of navigate our way through the world to to allow ourselves to continue to to make work and to make a living and to carry on and have a process. Um, yeah. Does that, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, I remember it. I'll, I'll try to re- rephrase it or recap it. Yeah. So the idea, I remember when it came to me because I was doing... I was doing research on juggling. I was trying to create new juggling. I was, you know, practicing juggling. And then I realized that, perhaps this is not true for everybody in the world, but for me, I realized that this practice that I'm doing and this research that I'm doing, there's no, there's no obvious spot for that to go in the world as a professional doing those things. So so what I mean is like if you if you study architecture and you get good at architecture, you can be an architect and then you use those skills. And if you were a better architect or you had you were, you know, more creative as an architect, that's going to have consequence in your work as an architect. Whereas a juggler I just felt that there was a bigger disconnection between my research as a, a, a juggler that creates new juggling. That new juggling has very little value in terms of being a professional. There's no, there's no, um, there's no spot where I can take new juggling for the sake of just for the fact that it's new and and in, innovated. And put it in the world like a gallery or a or a performance or something like that, and then it's gonna get appreciation and support for being what it is. I mean, just to be really clear here, to try to untangle, because this this is just a whole mess of a bunch of ideas that, like you say, are perhaps rather personal, not or not universal or something. Um, I think I can definitely. I can definitely relate and I think I know what you mean by all these things we're talking about, but it is all tangled up with personal practice of, 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 uh, let's say juggling, which is not necessarily a performance, but now we're talking about things like the market and, uh, commodification or production of a product that you're going to sell to get money. I mean, we're talking about a lot of different things here around that. I mean, this is obvious, I think, but I just don't want to. I just don't want to start with the assumption that juggling is for for performing and juggling is this and juggling is that, right? Right. And sure. I'm not saying you're yeah, doing yeah. that. Yeah, but we can discuss all the different, like, yeah. uh, you know, products of juggling. It's like, okay, you have juggling. How can you commodify it and sell it? Like, well, I think about it in a couple of different ways. Um, one is that I 
because this kind of came from this idea. And did you call did you call it the myth or the myth or the? Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll try to set up set that up so that. I, yeah, like this. I'm it's, gonna... a, it's a it's a very clear clinch between two clear uh, things. So let's say I learn juggling that already exists. I learn my back crosses. I learn my pirouettes. I learn my sequences that all from elsewhere, either they're old sequences of mine or from someone else, right? And that's mm. my juggling act. Yeah. Or show. There is no difference in terms of my success between having that product and going into the research studio and researching new juggling, innovating new juggling, and then making that into a product. I'm going to have, it is completely arbitrary which of those has more success. Like it's not, there's not a clear line where you could say, well, this stuff is new. So therefore... It's yeah, so more I mean, yeah, what you're talking about is a pre-existing market and the way that things are bought and sold, and that this quality you're describing now is generally not relevant to that process. Exactly. But I mean, you're the history guy. You're the juggling history guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- maybe that was different, right? I mean, somebody was doing pirouettes, and that became a trade, right? A, a trademark kind of move that was you could be you could sell that. Oh, yeah. I mean, back in, in the days of, like, early 1900s, like, Cinque Valle time, Michael Cara, 1900, 19, 1905, 1910, the jugglers would all uh, often advertise the new tricks that they were going to do in their performance. And it would, and also not, sometimes they would specify them, like, this is the trick that I'm going to do, and it's new and nobody else can do it. So that's one thing they did. And another thing they would do sometimes, it, it would be a general statement about new things, like uh, always adds new things to the repertoire every night. Like a juggler could write things like that in their advertisement. I think I've, the only, the only, my only personal experience with that kind of value to technique in terms of selling something in my lifetime I can say a couple of examples that, that I encountered personally is like, for example, you know, the circus festival Cirque du Mans, and I heard, you know, some rumors, well, for many years about people, my friends, maybe who were going to be in the festival or the contest or whatever. If you're doing tight wire, you know, you have to do the salto. You have to do the backflip. If you can't do the backflip on the wire, they don't let you in the festival, that there's a real technical level there that's stated. I mean, it's not advertised, but the politics behind you know, behind the, the scenes, the politics is that. And there's also negotiations that's like, well, I can do the backflip, the salto on the tight wire, but I don't normally do it. But they, and then they say, well, if you come to the festival and you do the backflip, we'll let you in, you know, and you have a negotiation between of technique. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard that like in Cirque du Soleil shows um, on the premiere of a new city, they'll put, I forget, I mean, now I'm speaking out of turn because I don't, uh, know that culture very well but there's a term they have for it like we're gonna run the full show or the i don't know what the word they have a, a premiere uh, the, the premiere act or something and that's where you put in all the saltos and all the double flips or all the double twists um but then of course you don't do that on the sunday matinee right it's not it's not uh human you can't keep that level of of technique for the whole run but on the premiere night when the press is there you do this so there is some sort of technical relationship to selling buying and selling uh, your work to, to technique. And the other thing I heard in terms of juggling was um, I saw a juggler in the GOP variety uh, theaters in Germany a bunch of years ago. 
And to be honest, the, the juggler was pretty poor and the act was pretty poor. But at the end, the juggler, uh, well, let's say tried to juggle nine balls. <laughs> and I had, and I had spoken to some, some of my colleagues uh, who were in the show doing another act. And I said, like, Oh, what's, what's the story with the juggler? And maybe not the strongest juggling act I've ever seen, but do you know what's the story? And they said, Oh yeah, well, management just hired him because he, he does nine balls in the act. And the nine balls was kind of a rarity in the current field of, of people who were performing in that market. Right. So they had some sort of superlative that they could, I don't know, brag about to their friends or justify his employment, at least. I don't know. Have you encountered any things like that? Well, I mean, all the examples that you're bringing up now, they're, they're not, te they're technical. It, it's not things that are new or created. No, totally. But I'm saying, and in relationship to buying and selling something, even let alone new and creative, I don't find the technique to be the main hook these days in terms of getting booked or not. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak of that. Uh, I don't think I can speak of that. Okay. You don't have any personal experience with that. No, you don't, you don't have to. I'm just asking. I mean, my, my personal experience is that when I graduated from circus school, my, the, the Russian teacher said, Eric, maybe ne next year, maybe nine balls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, but what I mean is, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you disagree with, with this thing I'm going to try to, I'm going to say now to try to get you to agree with me. Mm -hmm. But the thing I'm trying to say is these days, at least in my lifetime, if I look around the world in terms of financial structures of where to place your work to support your work and your process, I don't find any of those structures to be based on technique that you're doing. It's not like you you juggle five clubs and I juggle four clubs, so you get hired for the gig and I don't. That has nothing to do with it. I think a really strong example would be you know John Gilkey in the 1995 IJA competitions. Uh, Francois Rocher got first place. I got second place. Um, John Gilkey he didn't place, but he came out with the coat rack and the haircut and the the side, the slanted parallelogram suitcase and he juggled what three balls and you know i did my five club pirouette and francoise did her six batons and all these things and then i mean john got hired for the main character in kidam i didn't get a call from cirque du soleil that year <laughs> right do you see what i mean yeah sure uh, there's other elements that's that's uh at, at play there in terms of marketing and selling and of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not about technique in terms of that. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know how much I've thought about it in terms of like your, the, just the technical level. I was, I was approaching it from the, from the perspective of what's being created. And it's like, well, there's, wait, there's yeah. this, uh, another, another thing that I think is worth discussing because for me, I just mapped, you know, painting or sculpture or any other, you know, artistic activity where you produce something i just map that onto juggling and it's like well you produced a new painting you produced a new juggling trick for me that was like a okay one-to-one -one map i know that not everybody sees it that way i think some people they see that the juggling creation is the performance of the act the tricks and the material might be old or might be from someone else or might be the same as your dad did. <laughs> right. But what you're creating is the moment with the audience that that's the creation. And sure, that's a completely fine way of looking at it. I was looking at it from the perspective of material. 
like I created new juggling. It's a new way of moving with the objects mm -hmm. or throwing the objects or manipulating the objects. That was the that was the creation, and that's what I was looking at and and thinking that there is no place where this has any consequence for a juggling professional. Okay, yeah. I mean, one way I took it when you first told me this idea was that you look, I, I, I kind of maybe took it on a more abstract or a different tangent than you, but I, I kind of, since then I've looked around at the world and I just realized like, hey, I want to be a juggler, right? And I want to, and for me, I'm, I'm going to say that also uh, includes being performing the juggling. And that also includes, I'm going to uh, make money from that and support myself in some way, either support the process or support my family or whatever, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be sustainable is what I'm saying. There's some sort of sustainability there I'm looking for. And so again, when I say juggler, this is presupposing all those qualities that I don't think you have to take for granted because you can juggle without performing, just to say. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, so hey, I want to be a juggler and I'm, I'm making these things. Like you're saying, I'm creating this material, whether that material hasn't, you know, its origins were inside of me or outside of me or whatever. I have this stuff. And then I just look around the world and I say, hmm, what exists that's out there that I can engage with, with this work and in what way? And what is the, what's the good and bad parts of those, of, of each of those, of the, each of those contexts? So let me give some examples. I mean, this is, I'm just speaking conceptually, but very concretely, it's, Hey, I could, uh, well, I could go perform in that GOP theater in Germany, right? That's like one, that's a place that uses juggling performance in some way. And then I can uh, say, well, what's the good and bad part of that? Well, I don't know if I don't need to place a value judgment, but you can start to say it's a very particular style of market. It's a very particular, perhaps length of the act. Maybe the kind of aesthetic of the act is kind of similar. It's maybe some sort of... Um, type some particular type of music or visual look, right? Or, um, you know, for sure, I'm not gonna go to GOP and do my 30 minute long three ball exploration. That's not gonna happen because right. um, the format's wrong. But then I can say to myself, well, you know, I really wanna do this three ball, 30 minute long exploration, but hey, maybe I should get hired at GOP and do the five minute version of that. And I can take that GOP money and then I can fund my I don't know, I can rent a dance studio and then go make my 30 minute piece, you know, on my own, right? So there's, what I'm trying to say is there's good and bad qualities wherever you're going to place your work. So you could go to a pre-existing market, you could go on a cruise ship, you could, you could just name all the markets of people that hire jugglers um, in a commercial sense. But then there's other structures where you can say, well, I'm going to get grant money. Like that's a hot thing right now all over the world. Um, and then you say, oh, yeah, grant money, that's great. It's free money. That's that's the way to go. That's perfect. But then you start to realize, I mean, you and I know very, very well um, the drawbacks and the benefits of grant money. It's not all perfect and it's it's not all terrible either. Um, and then you can or maybe you could put your work inside of a, I don't know, educational institute, an institution of some sort. And like you're doing a Ph.D. right now, you're getting paid money. You, we sitting on this couch together. I'm I'm not getting paid money right now, but you getting paid money from from well, my tax money is paying you right now for the public institution. But what I mean is, and then and then people can engage that conversation and be like, man, what you're doing a PhD and you getting money every month? This is this is the dream. But I mean, you can tell 
you can tell me better than I can guess that it's not all perfect in the in the PhD educational route either. And what I'm trying to say is there's different places you can put your work that already exists and there's a good and bad quality to each of those things that you need to judge and weigh in your mind mm-hmm. in terms of how you want to position your work and how your process functions. And maybe another last thing to to just to bring up is maybe you look around the world and you say, hey, none of these pre-existing structures are ideal for what I want to do. Well, you can make your own. You can make your own market. You can make your own way. You can create a new market. You can, um, I mean, that's what happened when, when we started off our collaboration together, however many, 15, 20 years ago. And somebody had come to Victor Yulimberi and said, hey, if you have a show for a library, uh, we could sell that. Yeah. And that was kind of a new thing. So I mean <coughs> excuse me. For me, like I try I tried not to evaluate the different situations. I I more just look what you know what what's the reality of this and you could say of course, yeah, that's bad. Getting a grant is get bad or getting a grant is good or working here is good and working there is bad and of course there is that economical aspect of it that makes you like you have to sustain yourself in this world like pay your rent and stuff like that but i was trying to not go into evaluation too much Mm -hmm. i was just looking at like okay if i create this new jogging where am i gonna put it is there a place to put it Mm -hmm. without saying that that's bad or good like, yeah, I can't take my three ball 30 minute exploration into GOP. I could say that that's bad or I could say that's good, but I can also not put a value on it and just say, well, I can't. Okay, but can I put, <laughs> right. it, can I put it somewhere else? <clears throat> right. So, so when I was thinking about this back at that time when I told you about this was that, okay, I have my juggling research and it's just it's disconnected from all these places where i can put it so then i can so one conclusion mm. should be could be that okay i'm not going to i'm not going to do the exploration i'm not going to do create new juggling i'm just going to do my the back crosses and the head rolls that i can already do but then of course my conclusion is like no but i i like doing those things so i i want to keep doing them so then the result of that becomes this the in terms of the career or the place where I put my things in the world it's this I don't know if is it the correct word a, a jimmy rig okay yeah like you, you kind of that. MacGyver make your career yeah out of the, and and you're like well I couldn't put the 30 minute exploration in GOP but I could put the five minute there yeah so I kind of put a little piece there and then I could go to EJC and do a little bit thing there but ejc is just once a year you know and i don't get hired every year so okay once every five years i could go there once every you know six years i could go to the jjf and (laughs) uh, in in japan and um, oh yeah i could do this little thing here so i just realized like that's the myth like in my mind i used to think like i'm gonna create new juggling because i'm a you know juggling artist as in a juggler that creates new juggling yeah yeah but what i realized is that at that point is that's the myth like i there there is not if i do that the place where i where i put those things that i created as a juggling artist those are those are made up by me like it's a constant 
fiction that I have to sustain. Right. Yeah, I can really relate to that. I mean, already from the very, very beginning of this, of this discussion today between us, um, maybe we're too far away from it for you to remember, but you had said something about, you know, if you're an architect, you go to architect school mm-hmm. and you kind of learn, uh, you learn how to do that. And the funny thing is, I just wanted you to, to expand on that and just to, there, there's the difference that doesn't even work as an analogy to kind of map that onto juggling, for example, because when you go to juggling school, that's absolutely not the same kind of codified uh, material or content that you would learn in architect school to be an architect. And you talked about that pretty recently, right? Remember you had said that, what were you saying? You were talking to your brother-in-law or something or somebody you had been talking to that they went to school and they're like, oh yeah, then we had the history of... Yeah, that was a psychologist. Okay. I was talking to them. I forget how long the education was. It was a guy who was starting to be a psychologist mm. and so i asked him a little bit about that like so what do you do and and said well you know the first you know year or whatever it was we we have the course and we go go through the rudimentary you know history and basics of psychology and like how we got to the point where where it's at right now right and i was just like whoa and he had kind of said it casually oh too, yeah there was a... nothing to him that yeah. was completely just like yeah it's just what you do completely self-evident and almost boring or mundane yeah to the point of you couldn't even barely mention it like, right yeah, then we had to do all these fundamentals, you know, of like, Freud, you know, the history of how things came to be, you know, because it's just so, <laughs> it's so normal and it's just so common that, that that would exist. Yeah. And you had that reaction to that. I remember you, you called me that day and you were just like, can you imagine that juggling would have this level of, you know. Yeah, it was just, I was just blown away by that. So, yeah, I just wanted to say, because at the beginning now you were talking about, yeah, you know, go to architecture school. And I think it's really easy in a, in a, in a casual conversation to be like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's circus school, you can go there for juggling and you kind of can, you know, just gloss over the, the, the comparison of the two, but just to point that out and say like, that's completely different, uh, structure in terms of the market, in terms of the, the yeah. bigger, the bigger world of where you're going to put your work. And well, when you first told me about this idea, this construction of this fiction of the rhythm of your life to produce this work and to sustain or support yourself. I think I took it on a little bit of a different, uh, I maybe misunderstood a little bit and I took it more culturally somehow to, uh, well, for better or worse, I was just imagining that you go to a, whatever, just super cliche example. Um, you go to a bar, you know, and you, you meet somebody at a bar and you're, you're, you're sitting next to them or whatever, and you strike up a conversation or at a bus stop or it doesn't matter. Right. And then eventually maybe the conversation gets around to, hey, what do you do for a living or what do you do or for a hobby or it doesn't matter, but what do you do? And then they can, oh, yeah, I'm a, you know, they say, oh, I'm a plumber or whatever. And then you and then what do you do? And you go, oh, I'm a juggler. <laughs> and already there in that conversation, um, just to acknowledge, you know, culturally, those words, they have completely different types of detailed meanings. I mean. If somebody says they're a plumber, I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think I know what that means. But I think if you tell somebody on the street or that you meet just, you know, in the moment and you say, I'm a juggler, that definitely takes some qualifying to understand what that actually means. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, just assuming they want to continue the conversation, but it's just like, oh, you're a juggler. I mean, there's going to be a follow up question to clarify. Yeah. Right. And that's what I was thinking when you meant that there was kind of this myth that we're telling ourselves like, well, what are you? Well, I'm a juggler. And to me, I'm creating that image in my head 
what I'm saying is that's probably even really different than the image in your head of what a juggler is. And we're both jugglers <laughs> and we both worked together for 20 years. But I think our realities are very different. I mean, I know that for sure, right? Mm. And so the establishment of like, well, even, even to say like I'm a teacher, that might take some clarification. Oh, you teach what kindergarten? You teach university? You teach in high school? You know, there's a few different levels of, of clarity there. But it's not completely ambiguous, perhaps, as saying, oh, I'm a juggler. <laughs> it's just like, wow, what does that even mean? And, it, and we not to get stuck on language uh, or, or definitions, but there is that, um, you know, we talked about in, in season in season one of our podcast about the definition of juggling. And then, hey, maybe what's the next step after realizing this uh position we're in with language and it was like well maybe we should create a technical language to um to have a clear uh separation of, of what does it mean to be a juggler for for example maybe a juggler in germany variety maybe a juggler on a cruise ship or a juggler and as a street performer or a juggler as a hobbyist or a juggler as a prop maker or a juggler as an enthusiast i don't know you could have different words um i'm a jugglerist oh you work in germany or i don't know right like we don't have that technical language, even among ourselves. Um, but yeah, I was really, I was really struck when you were saying, "Man, we create this fiction in our lives to kind of." And also, there was an element for me, and again, I don't know if I got this wrong, but there was this element of like, I'm creating this not a lie, <laughs> but I'm creating a version of reality that I'm kind of fooling myself with to carry myself forward, right? Totally. To give myself the illusion that what I'm doing is cohesive, where an action and, and kind of flowing forward in a, in a straightforward, productive, you know, uh, meaningful <laughs> manner. But then the reality of it is just like you said, um, these just little moments that you kind of construct out of nothing of like, well, hey, man, we're going to go to EJC this year and they're going to pay us, you know, X amount. We're, we're not going to lose money going to EJC this year. And you're like, sweet. And then you maybe get another gig that pays you a little bit more money to sustain you, like literally sustain you to pay your rent and food and whatever for the next, you know, three months. Um, so this, this kind of longer arc of our lives or our career or our tra trajectory as an artist, we have that constructed in our minds as this kind of thing that's really happening. But yeah, when you stop and examine it on another level, it is just very granular. It's just very... Uh, maybe erratic even or sporadic um these little points uh along a timeline that we add up uh in our own mind but maybe somebody else looking at it i absolutely could could imagine that that doesn't add up for them <laughs> they're like yeah i mean there is not even a peak like there's not even like let's say you're the most creative innovative juggler in the world and even if you're recognized as such in in the juggling community there's no there's no place where you could put that innovation and it in and it something happens you know if you're if you look at the art world if you're recognized as you know the most in, innovative you know groundbreaking artist that there is like there's that has consequence and there's going to be galleries that are interested in you and there's going to be mm. you know uh, things for you to do as a profession. Yeah, I really, I mean, I was, I was uh, struck by this thought years ago, you know, when Wes, he, he started putting out those videos to sell, to sell videos, you know, back in the day. 
And those videos were so fun and so inspiring for us. And I mean, all the whole community, I think, I mean, it was very well received and it was a nice, uh, a nice thing that everybody kind of got into, um, at least into the content of them, you know? And um, I was always thinking, man, it would be so fun that you could be a, I don't know, we don't have a word for it, but you could be a professional hobbyist yeah. is kind of the word, meaning you could make money and support yourself in a new format which doesn't exist right now. And that format would just be through your dedication in this, in the practice room to, to discovering and creating new juggling and, uh, and externalizing that somehow, like making a video like West did or going to, you know, going to the, going to the juggling festival. And then you're there in the gym and you just bust out all your juggling that you've been working on and people are into that. And that's a valuable experience. And that's happened sometimes for sure, like here and there. It's definitely not an established, uh, again, an established, quote unquote, career track or or something that I think you can you can rely upon. I've heard or even just simple things like in the juggling world, like having having a sponsorship. And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There are examples of sponsorship in the juggling world. Uh, we've been sponsored in the past by even non juggling companies for our juggling like Threadless and 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 things like that but it's definitely if you compare it to whatever anything else you know skateboarding or whatever endorsements i mean celebrity endorsements for coca-cola or something that's not i mean the closest i ever heard of that was the anthony gatto reebok campaign did you ever see that i've heard about it but i didn't see it you do you have the gatto poster where he's doing the different i do yeah yeah you'll notice that in one of the shots with the rings he has the reebok tracksuit on and that was part of that campaign that, that they did some photo shoots. And have you seen the have you seen the TV commercial that I don't I don't know if it ever aired really, but he's doing kickups with Reebok shoes on and there's a oh. it's pretty cool. So that's like the closest I've ever, you know, heard of like if we're comparing to other, you know, examples of, of kinds of things you could do beyond um kind of the options that are already out there right now. But I would love it if if uh yeah, I don't know, this idea that Wes could just be locked in a room <laughs> Well, there was and some, and, and know, that could support himself through that. You there know? Was a, when Wes started making those videos, that was like in the shift between VHS, DVD, and now everything was suddenly online. Like because the, there was and streaming and, and streaming and downloads, yeah. Download. And I remember the conversation then. Then because some people were were uh, very upset that Wes and others charged money. Money, yeah. That money had entered the picture, yeah. And, uh, and like, yeah, I, c I could see that from, you know, different angles, but the, the argument was that, no, you give your video for free mm. and as in return, you get my video for free. Like we all have this community where everybody just pitches in their material for free. Well, I think also there was just the, the implication that it was like, oh man, now if Wes is charging money for this, everybody's going to charge money for everything. Yeah. That's going to become the new standard or something. And there was a cry out to, like there was a, there was a vocalization of that's maybe what a lot of people didn't want the community to go towards that direction. Right. But I mean, the question that you could ask yourself just for fun is if you think that there's two jugglers and they're equally good. Mm. and equally created, creative, creative, that both of them start making juggling videos and one of them is getting paid to do his, his juggling videos and the other uh, is not getting paid. So he has to go to a normal job and do other things, right? To sustain himself. 
Yeah. Because they're both alive in this reality that we're in. And if you if you think about this experiment and you think it think of it a few years down the line, which juggler do you think is most uh, probable to create a better video? Yeah. And for me, the, that answer is obvious. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's the reality that we should strive for. But I think it's worth thinking about, like, what's the what's the setup that we that we're pushing for? And what's the what's the consequence and the, the outcome of that setup? And sure, like, yeah, everybody gives their videos for free, then we get free videos. But if we if there's an economy there, maybe we get better videos or more creative videos or more videos. I don't know. I think I just think it's worth thinking about. I don't think it's as black and white as like I need to pay for a video or I get the same video for free. I don't think that's the reality. Well, one thing too is that this whole digital culture has moved so fast that these questions aren't even probably relevant anymore in the actual reality of today. I mean, it's or it's developed so far forward that these are totally different questions now because you have Patreon and you have these different platforms like the crowdfunding Kickstarter. You did a Kickstarter. Um, so there are different kind of, you know, cultures that developed around those questions just to say that are further along than when Wes started uh, <laughs> back back then. Um, but I was thinking about when you first told me about this idea of the myth of the juggler or whatever, again, I looked around the world and I saw all these places I could put my work or I have put my work. And one kind of personal epiphany I had in this process when I went home that night and thought about what you said was, I had always told myself that, yeah, I'm doing my thing. I am doing my thing. I am doing the thing I want to do. I, I, I have this desire to, to, to make juggling or use juggling or create juggling in this way. And I had previously until that day, I had always thought like, yeah, but I'm doing it. I'm making the juggling I want to make and I'm putting it in these different places. I'm, you know, selling it. I'm selling, I'm doing shows or I'm teaching or I'm making a video or whatever. Right. And I was like, yeah, but I, previous to this that day, I was like, yeah, but I'm doing it. I'm doing those things. But then when I sat down and really thought about what you said and looked at what I was doing, I realized that actually everything, everything I made, I was, uh, I'm going to say the word compromise. I was compromising in some way to interact and externalize it to the world. And I just want to say really fast about the word compromise that Normally, like even now in this in this context, when I just said it, it kind of could sound negative. Like I'm because you say compromise your integrity. That's like a common thing. So it has a negative connotation. I don't think compromise has to be negative, negative at all, especially lots of times in the creative process. Um, going back to this idea that the audience who comes to see you is expecting to see something. I mean, they have some preconceived notion, uh, e even if that preconceived notion is I have no idea what I'm going to see. You have to acknowledge that. That's also something to deal with too. They have it exists, you know, no matter if it's if it's how well formulated it is. And then there's something that you want to show them. And I think then in this way, you have to compromise between those two expectations in order to have a true meeting that the the people will actually see what it is that you actually want to show them. And there's gonna be some sort of um compromise on either side of that to get through that process together. And in that way, I think compromise is the is the best thing. And it is the creative force. At least that's the language I used to talk about it to myself. Like when we were doing shoebox tour, we're going to go meet this audience in this, 
deconstructed space or, you know, non-theatrical environment. And we want to present this kind of juggling and they maybe think they're going to see another type of performance. And then there's a compromise I have to go through to acknowledge the situation, to create what's appropriate and what's going to actually work there. So I think that compromise is good for me. I use that word compromise very positively then. So I don't want to just say that when I examined my life and I realized I had compromised every single thing I made, it doesn't mean I was completely depressed or destroyed, but it was a shock because I did not really, I, I don't think I was that conscious of how much actually I did perhaps, um, I don't know, twist my own expectations in many different contexts. Um, I mean, not, not willingly. Like when I'm talking about creating the stuff for Shoebox Tour, that's, that's an agreement of compromising I willingly enter into, like consciously, I mean. Like I, I want to engage that situation and I actively want to try to solve the meeting of us with the audience. That's something that I think that's, that was something I was aware of, I mean. But when I looked around at my life that, that night um, and the work I had produced over the years and the different companies I worked in or the different collaborations I'd done or my solo projects, I was pretty shocked at actually a bunch of stuff I didn't realize at the time I was maybe twisting or tweaking or tr to, to fit into that space where I was. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had another following thought on from that, which was there was, it does turn out there was actually a lot of things or a lot. I mean, it's relative. Let's just say at least a few things that I did want to do with my juggling that I had never accomplished just because precisely because of what you're talking about. This idea of the myth that we're, we're pretending we're going forward doing our thing, but at, on closer examination, it's it's a it's a lot more subtle than that. It's a lot of more of a yeah a give and take or a, so so yeah. so so there were some things I had come up with where I was like, oh man, sure wish I could do that, and then I looked around at the world and I was like, I don't know where to do that or how to do that, and those are still I think on my list today. I I haven't solved the problem, but yeah, I don't know. Like when I when I had that realization that this is all like something that that I'm. <laughs> MacGyvering together I don't know like I haven't I'm not done with the evaluation of that situation like all I'm saying is that I realized that it was a myth but maybe it's a good that it's that situation I'm not saying it's a good or bad I do think like that if sure. it was if it was good if I decided that oh yeah this is this is a good thing that it's that it's like this I have to I have to you know mix and match and cut and compromise and all of these things. Mm. I think what, what's good, if I'm, if I'm going to try to see both sides of that, if what's good about it is that if there was a specific spot where I would put my juggling invention and where I, where I, where I tried, you know, I'm, there was the one juggling gallerist, you know, who <laughs> sold uh, juggling inventions super expensively and that was you know my dream to be you know represented by this <laughs> gallerist yeah let's say that it did exist there was a place like that in the world where I, I i could try to approach well then that person or context or thing would also dictate to a certain degree what i'm doing right yeah 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 and now i don't have that so there's a freedom there i think now it's the direction comes from inside of me. It's not like, cause I have to, you know, I have to, uh, convince, you know, Jean-Michel Basquiat's old, uh, gallerist that I'm the new, <laughs> <laughs> right. 
right that i'm the new guy you know so there's that so that i think is could could be good oh no for sure well i mean just to say too this is another situation where we're talking about something and juggling that you uncovered and it was kind of a new idea to me and then i get really excited about that idea or it really resonates you know on whatever level and then upon further reflection i'm like hmm this feels this feels like something that's probably absolutely not unique to juggling it's probably way more universal and i wish i knew a lot more about for example the art world of how the art world worked because maybe this is just a completely banal conversation for any artist these days and they're just like yeah of course we all create this myth but i do think the situation even if you want to even if you want to talk about the art world which is which is probably way less concrete than the world of plumbing i guess or window replacement or whatever right as a business um i'm still i still look around the world at the art world and I just go, man, this is way more uh, advanced and deep uh, than the juggling world. And that's also can just come back to number. It's just a numbers game. And we talked about this the other day. That's just, just the sheer amount of, for example, artists in the world is just exponentially, infinitely larger than the world of juggling. So you're going to have much, much more variations, many more opportunities, much more development in different areas. I mean, that's just how it, that's just how it goes, and I think. Um, well, I was just to just to specify, I was looking at juggling invention and just juggling creation specifically. Mm -hmm. I was not thinking about the world of juggling. There's plenty of opportunities and things you can do there. I agree. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. Well, for sure, but it's still uh, this idea of well, buying and selling juggling. I mean, in the larger picture. Um, I, I'm going to say that I don't think from my from my personal experiences and from kind of being around for a few years, I don't think it's necessarily hard. I mean, this word hard again, it's it's how much meaning does it have? Because it's relative, but it's not hard to make money necessarily with juggling. Or here is something that I was I don't say taught because I didn't go to a school and I didn't have a teacher, but I did meet older performers when I was growing up. I'll tell you that. And it was really fun to talk to them and. I got some lessons or some insights, you know, some advice, right? You, and um, I remember when somebody told me and they said, yeah, you know, it's not hard to make money juggling, but then you have to sit down and start to think about your life and what you want to do and what kind of juggling you want to do and what you're prepared, you know, what you're prepared to do for that money. Um, that there is money out there if you do things in a certain way, if you do X, Y, and Z, well, then you can get money for that but maybe you don't want to do X, Y, and Z. That's the problem there for me. So that really made an impression on me when I was a teenager because I thought when I started off juggling and performing, I thought making a living at juggling in terms of the only aspect I'm going to say right now is making money. I thought that was hard. And then somebody, some older performer said, no, 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 making the money. That's You can get money in. If that's your only goal, you can get money in relatively easy. But then it's maybe a lifestyle or it's a product or it's a performance that you don't personally really want to engage with or sustain. I mean, um, and I remember actually he was telling me about this program he had done. And what's it called? I'm going to mess up the name. The Play for Food or Food Play. Food Play. Is that mm. it? Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a, it's, so it's, it's a company in America that has a pre-made script, like it's written. It's like you get a script like from a play, like again, from a Shakespeare play. It's already written, William Shakespeare wrote it, 
well, here's a play about, I think it's food nutrition, good nutrition. Yeah. And then you would juggle vegetables and the food groups, maybe juggle some bread or some milk and you're, it's kind of an acting role, but also you're a juggler. And then I remember you had to also own your own car. That was a, that was a stipulation. And then you would do five or six shows a day driving around to schools doing this half hour long pre-made show that you didn't create and there is that element of what we do in terms of juggling culture with performing that there is some sort of personal ownership over the material usually or there's a strong relationship to that very very personally and i really remember being a teenager thinking like man i'd have to do a show that somebody else made (laughs) like like that's not something i would really you know be passionate about um, but I, I've had friends who have done food play and they love it. And I mean, just looking at it in terms of a money-making endeavor, seems like a wonderful thing because all the shows are pre-booked by the company. You just get a schedule at the beginning of the week and you just drive to these addresses in that in your car and then you just get a paycheck at the end of the week. And you and I have both self-produced enough in our lives to know that that's, pretty, that's a pretty good luxury and, you know, if you're willing to do that type of work. So just this idea that, um, yeah, that money maybe is not uh, diff- the, the, the main uh, stumbling block here, but it's, it's also lifestyle and your passion and how you connect to it. Um, did you have anything to say? <laughs> no? Do you want me to keep going? No, I think that's it. I think, yeah, that's, that's the, that was the thought. I mean, for me, well, like a lot of it has to do with just being aware of what the reality is not necessarily like if mm. it's good or bad or desired or right it's just like oh this is the re- actual reality yeah and then it's just easier to navigate i mean i'm with you like it, it it was like the definition of juggling it's like uncovering the way the world actually is i feel somehow better i i like it like yeah. it empowers me somehow and it's like you say, it doesn't have to be a judgment of like, oh man, we discovered that we're living a lie. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna so this is a terrible crisis. Yeah, it, I really was glad you said that that day. And like I said, I can never get it out of my head. And I, I've been trying to describe it to lots of people because I think it's a, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about. I mean, one thing I was thinking about, because we're talking about buying and selling and performing. And one thing uh, in terms of how the world works and, uh, the system that's set up. One thing that also I was pretty shocked to learn was, or to figure out was that, you know, we think as a performer, our main obligation is to the audience in terms of, for example, when me and you, when we're creating a new show for the market that we play in Sweden, we used to think that, well, and I mean, so sorry, there's two stories going on here. They're, They're parallel stories. There is the, the internal story of the work of what me and you actually believe in and what we actually want to do with the work. And then there's the second story, which is parallel, which is how do you, again, how do you connect that work to the real world? How do you externalize that work and how do you talk about that work? So we have an internal conversation about the work that's very different than when we have to speak to these uh, institution and structures that we interface with. Those conversations, the language we, we use is very different. And what I'm saying is, um, I think when we make our show, so we perform in Sweden, we perform a lot for children, right? We're doing a, a school market. And I think one of our internal conversations is that uh, the audience of, of children, well, they're just people too. 
they're not quote unquote children in terms of that means we're going to make a different kind of uh, starting premise for the work conceptually. I think what we do in terms of the concession to them being younger is that we might fix the rhythm or the accessibility of the work, but we don't start with the basic premise being I, lowered somehow because they're children. Oh, well, they're children, they're kids. They're not going to understand this. So we can't, we better like jump around like frogs or put on a bunny rabbit costume or whatever else we've seen uh, to try to, to, to try to, to try to, you know, have that conversation with an audience. Well, they're kids. So I guess we have to act like cartoon characters. We kind of don't take that approach. We say, well, they're people too. And if we're interested in this, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're probably also interested in this. But we're also going to acknowledge that <laughs> we're old and they're kids. And so maybe the way we present it to them is going to be, you know, have to be modified or tweaked or whatever. And so we do have that sensitivity to the audience. And I think when we do the shows, we do the actual performances. We, we, we are very um, aware of the audience. But what I'm getting to is the conversation between ourselves when we make the work, it's, it's internal. But then when we have to go and sell the work, um, we have to have a conversation with the structure which is going to support the work. Which in this case, we found, for example, in the market in Sweden, there's a huge disconnect between the audience and the, and the, and the structure that brought us there in front of, to be in front of that audience. And so I used to think when me and you made a show... But the main point was, well, we got to make a good show for the audience. And then I figured out after a couple of times, our main point in terms of money is we have to make a show that the producer likes, not the kids. And that can be a totally different conversation because the producer has a or the institution or financial support, you know, grant system or whatever of subvention system. They have their own preconceived notion about what a show for kids looks like, sounds like, or what it accomplishes or what it does. I mean, you can also say that in different ways, perhaps in America, I haven't played the schools there for uh, 25, 30 years or something. Um, but there you you have to have, for example, a message, like you would do, uh, don't do drugs would be the theme of your, or this food play, right? Good nutrition. Um, and that's um, from the support, the financial structure that, that that enables you to do that performance in front of those kids to justify its existence and the funding and the, spend, the, the spending of resources <laughs> to have you there. And for example, just to contrast that with our work in Sweden, um, I remember we had this um, American woman come to visit Sweden one summer and we were doing a show and she came to see our show. We were performing for kids and she was so shocked that in our show, we didn't have a message. And then she said, wow, you, you just did, you just did, you know, art, <laughs> like you were giving art to the kids. And it isn't something I take for granted, but it is a position I do acknowledge that we're in in Sweden where we can, we are under the umbrella of culture. Hmm. And that's a really nice, I have to say, I enjoy that a lot. Like, I think it's really a nice place to be. But just this idea, I, uh, I, I was really, um, I don't know if I felt stupid when I figured it out, but there was that moment of, man, I thought I was doing a show for an audience, but it turns out I'm doing a show for a producer on one level, at least in terms of business, because the producer is the barrier between me and the audience, actually. And normally, I'd say in other areas of my performing life, that connection between the, the supporting structure to enable that performance and the audience is more closely related. It's in a feedback loop. 
for example, on a cruise ship, you know, the audience, they fill out audience comment cards every show. And that is directly tied to your employment. But the thing is, we'll go to a school in Sweden and we'll do a show and the, the teacher there or the kids, they'll be like, this is the coolest thing we've ever seen. Um, but that energy never gets captured in this feedback loop because they're not the ones who bought the show. They're just attending a show that the regional cultural minister has hired from this other program of funding and blah, 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 blah. And that person who hired us is sitting in an office, you know, 500 kilometers away uh, and never met us and never, you know, hasn't even seen the show live. They saw our our name on a website or, or a booking conference uh, booklet or something like that. And also, I mean, I did perform in GOP and the theaters in Germany with Wes for, we did five seasons or something. And one, and this also really struck me as a uh, bizarre, um, I didn't, I didn't know, know about it before I got there, but the person who hired us, I mean, we had to go do an audition that was quite, uh, I don't say rigorous, but it was a serious thing. It wasn't just like a joke, like, oh yeah, Eric, come perform here, whatever, who cares? It was like, you had to be vetted through that process. There was a barrier of entry that was quite high, I thought. And so we, we finally get there and it's like a serious thing. Like, oh yeah, we got this contract. We're going to go, go perform in these theaters. And then, you know, in the culture around the, those shows, at least I experienced was the day after the premiere in the city, the director and the producer and the, the office staff, I mean, the, of, of the show creation, they leave. And then you're just there alone for the next three months. They never see the show evolve or grow or how you're doing with the audience after that first day because you've already proven your worth. You wouldn't be there if it wasn't already going to be good. And I thought that was also pretty crazy that in, the, in, in that same situation, if you want to go. So, for example, if you want to go perform in GOP, at least in my experience, uh, you shouldn't make an act that the audience is going to love. You should make an act that the producer thinks the audience is going to love. And I just want to say sometimes that's a different, those are different things. I mean, those are two different goals, actually, because the producers have their own preconceived notion of what that actually is. And that comes back to my mind about what we're saying now, because there are those structures that you, you, you think about in the world. And you had said, you know, it's this myth or this fantasy that you construct in your head. And I realized from thinking about that, all the other myths mm. and fantasy I had created in my head about my work. For example, like this thing I just talked about with the producer yeah. that I'm performing for the audience. And then I realized, yes, I'm performing for the audience, but the creation of what I'm doing is I'm actually creating mm. things to impress producers. And that was kind of an epiphany out of what you were saying. And so I think there's a lot of value. And I mean, I've tried to apply this same thinking to other areas of my life since I talked to you that one day. Because I think it's fascinating, these stories we tell ourselves or these assumptions we have. And it's the same thing as the definition of juggling and all your work to uncover the tangling of the reality that we're in. Yeah, I think it's like you you navigate a reality that has a certain, you know, that has certain causalities. And then you you think you're, you're, you're it's in a certain way, but then you realize that the reality that you were thinking of was not real that was a myth and there's another reality with another causality that you're actually in so the your actions they were um they were made up by you because of because of the the myth in your head not because of the actual world that you were in 
So I think it's a navig it, it it can create uh, navigation problems. <laughs> right. You know, you're navigate it's like it's like you're you're on a ship and it's pitch black and you have a map and you're navigating according to the map, right? Mm. And then when you know sun goes up, you realize that you weren't where the map where you thought you were on the map. Mm. And I think that's kind of the situation that I that I realized I was in. Did you change anything then about your behavior or your life, or was it just this this kind of relationship to what you're doing that was? deeper uh well i definitely like i had to you know i had to reevaluate what the different things meant you know do i want to do research and what what do i want to get out of it you know and be realistic about that rather than thinking that i'm going to get hired somewhere or i'm going to show it somewhere maybe that's not that's not perhaps the real reality so then you have to reevaluate, you know, okay, but if if that's not the thing, why you want to do it? Then, well, then you better have a real interest in it. You yeah. better have, okay, what what do you want to get out of it this time you spend doing those things? Okay, and wh- what are perhaps, because you need to have goals and you need to have some kind of direction. So where do you want to take that stuff and where do you want to go and is it just all internal in the studio and your own process and it, it never gets externalized? Well, that's probably not what I desire. Yeah. Man, that reminds me, you're talking about this idea of uncovering what's really happening and and understanding where you actually stand. I was um, in a conference last year and there was um, a bunch of cultural administrators invited to this conference and I was there... Um, in a kind of uh, administrative capacity. Um, and I got to hear these leaders of culture have candid conversations. And just to gather all these cultural administrators into one room to have a conversation, I already thought was really powerful. I'd never gotten to experience that before because there are all these structures, again, these structures out in my world where I try to interact with them to, in terms of my work. And it's always, for me, completely mysterious. It's just a maze of politics and networking and rules that I don't, I really don't fully grasp, right? And, and then there was a conversation I overheard in this conference which completely blew my mind and kind of, I, I don't know what you're going to say to it. I mean, it kind of destroyed me, but also gave me some hope uh, <laughs> in a strange way. So the conversation was this. Um, and I'll try to put this uh, delicately so I can say it publicly. Um, so I have to abstract it a little bit. But basically there was uh, an owner of one of the biggest theaters in this one place. And the owner of the theater, or the, 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 the director of the theater, I mean, the, the artistic director, was talking to um, another uh, director of another, another huge theater. And the story went like this, that a performer had come to this artistic director and this performer was really well established in that network and in that community. I mean, very well respected and had previously performed there, done many projects and collaborations with them. And the performer asked, hey, I just got a phone call from uh, Sweden's Got Talent TV show. (laughs) And um, I just wanted to ask you some advice that if I do Sweden's Got Talent, do you think that will... um, what's the word damage my professional artistic reputation in the community and in the, in the market that I'm performing in. 
And as the director of the theater tells the other director of the theater, and, and they said, well, I mean, of course, if that performer does Sweden's Got Talent, I will never hire them ever again. That's like completely embarrassing. Can you imagine that we would feature somebody who had been on Sweden's Got Talent? Like, that's insane. And then, and then the director says to the other director um, in kind of a, a lower voice, but of course, I couldn't say that to the performer. I mean, I'm the director of the theater. I can't say that publicly. So I just told her like, yeah, you should do the TV show. And I, I mean, I was just, I about fell over, man. Because I just imagine this performer um, goes on Sweden's Got Talent, you know, has a fine enough time or whatever. Who cares, right? Does this stupid TV show. And then, and I'm not, and also just to be clear, I think this performer was going to make something for Sweden's Got Talent and was going to go back to making appropriate things for this other market they were already doing. It's not like you're going to go make some, you're going to go on Sweden's Got Talent with some 90 second, you know, flashy clip and then try to put it back into this more quote unquote artistic theater. It's not that. It's just the damage of the professional reputation in the eyes of the politics of the director or whatever. And so I just imagine this poor performer to go on the TV show the next year, go write a bunch of grants, get back in the grant system, make a new creation as they had previously done in their career, go back to that theater and try to book that show. And then, the, and then they get a no. And then that performer is going to internalize that and go, oh, I guess our show wasn't good enough, right? The quality of the work wasn't good enough. Oh man, now I have to try again. It's another what? What's the grant cycle? Three year cycle for creation, something like you know what I mean? There's some sort of cycle, two or three year creation. So they go back and they're like, Oh, I guess I have to try again. And they go and write more grants and they get more funding and they blah blah blah. They do a whole new creation. They go back to that theater, you know, in six years. Hey, will you hey now you can buy this new show? It's super good. And then the director's like, Nope. Right? And that's the rest of their lives. And that performer will never know. The mechanics behind that story. Yeah. Yeah, you have to uncover the real causality. I, I really think so. Well, so that, so that when I heard that, I was so seriously shocked. It, I mean, again, just to hear an honest conversation like that was kind of a gift. Mm. You don't hear those things, man. Mm. And, and uh, so I was shocked that they just spoke so honestly and openly. I was shocked that those, those kinds of things happened. But then, of course, I was glad to find out that there are those things happening behind, this, behind the scenes because you kind of intuit that those things are happening. But you'll never know for sure. You'll never uncover them because, like, like they said, I'm the director of a theater. There's no way I can say that publicly because it's insane. <laughs> like, I would be, you know, uh, it would not work. And so I was pretty, pretty freaked out by that conversation and at the same time a little bit empowered because I knew then, okay, I, I removed another layer of reality, right? Like another veil was lifted. Another mystery was kind of not solved, but pointed out that there is a mystery going on behind the scenes. And then how do I navigate using that idea too? So yeah, that was maybe a, a really powerful moment. And uh, I think that's a good place to end this. But hey, I just want to say thanks so much for bringing up this idea of the myth as an artist. And it really did uh, change the way I look at what I do in a, in a super meaningful way. And I still think about it constantly. So yeah, man, I got to thank you for sharing that idea. Great. Thanks for the conversation.